The time is 6.27 p.m. And welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sansbury. So, Ian, here we are, another week. How was yours? Yeah, so I have to apologise. I've got a touch of cricket voice this evening. So, uh, cricket voice? Yes, it's been a it was a long weekend. We were up in the Midlands playing a bit of a bit of blind cricket, the national T Twenty finals, ball to hand. Lamentably, didn't win. Lashed the semi final up. Ended up coming third, having battered Lancashire in the fourth place playoff. And then uh, a good time has had by all, and I have, I've had the joys of a Sunday rail service back from Birmingham, which of course is interesting, because the only way to get home is to go via Bristol, which isn't entirely on the way. So uh, yes, an eventful old week and weekend for me. How about yourself, as a shrewd political narrator and um, watcher, what's been tickling you this week? Well, well, lots of people found out in a very public way whether they whether they got to keep their jobs or not, um, and whether they were being promoted, demoted, sidestepped, or basically just flung out of the park entirely. Um, there was that happening. Yeah, that was quite a spectacle. Some, I think, expected. Poor old Gav Williamson was finally put out of his misery, um, and others, which I would largely unexpected. I'd, I'd I don't think our very own Penny Mordaunt fared too well from the latest reshuffle. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a an interesting watch. Some of our local, uh, well not necessarily two locals, but uh, Caroline Dinage over in uh, over in Gosport has obviously upset somebody. Well, yeah, ended up being replaced by um, Nadine Doris, which is um, um, I. I I don't know how to how to respond to that without sounding unkind, really. Um, but it's um, well, we sh- we should see how how much better culture um, and media um, fares with with her at the helm. Um, uh, I don't think um, anyone was really surprised that um, Gavin Williamson was um, flicked into the flicked into the long cast. Although I did see a rumor on Twitter, I don't know how true it is that um, that he might appear in the New Year's honours. Um, which unless that's an opportunity for Her Majesty to lop his head off, which I don't think is likely, um, then I, d- you, I don't quite. Can you get an award for services to bungling? I, I don't know. Maybe maybe if we have an algorithm for that, that's possible. Ah, could be, could be. So which segues us? Well, not nicely. Because, good Lord, I was about to say that was a terrible segue. I was about to be unkind about tonight's show. So, uh, well, this evening we have a guest. It would yeah, it would save other people the trouble. Um, yes, so we we are um, to be joined this evening uh, by Councillor Darren Sanders, who is the cabinet member for housing and preventing homelessness. So we've invited him onto the show to talk to us about um, what Portsmouth City Council are doing um, with regarding housing and helping um, those uh, those people that are fleeing um, the awful situation in Afghanistan. So running, literally running for their lives. Um, what um, what the city's um, doing to help help them. Um, so while we build up to the point where Darren um, enters the show, um, shall I talk? Shall I briefly kind of try and sell some of the shows that we've got coming up? Just to yeah, just to get a head a heads up in terms of uh, yes, of, and the timing still 
Still to be finalised, but we are we're hoping to bring you in the next few weeks. Yeah. So uh, so next week we um, we're going to be talking. We're going to be asking whether the Portsmouth City Council purchase of the new Theatre Royal um, is a is, you know is effectively is is that um, that level of support or that mechanism of supporting of local culture is that is that a good idea? What's the what's the rationale behind that um so we've got um, we've got steve pitt who knows the ins and outs of the of the local theater scene um to come on and talk to us about that um but we've got a um a headline guest that we've got coming up um but we've not confirmed the date just yet and that would be the freshly minted uh new leader of uh, the portsmouth conservative group on portsmouth city council which is none other than simon bosher so, yeah, so we're gonna gonna invite Simon on, um, you know, in in, in his uh, in a sort of statement to the media when he took the role on, he he made some some very strong, um, powerful statements about the vision for Portsmouth that uh, that Simon has. Um, so we're gonna invite him on to uh, explore some of those uh, some of those aspirations and and really just get his thoughts and overview on the local political scene. Indeed. And so um, other than him, we'll also be at at some point around the time that the decision's made, um, unless it's obviously delayed again. um, We we are inviting back onto the show the um, the campaigners from Let's Stop Aquin to talk to us about how their campaign's gone. And uh, depending on the timing as to whether that's uh, what they hope to see or what actually their response is um, to the outcome of that decision. So hopefully that will be a isn't that nice the campaign won or it will be oh that's awful what's next um Mm. does this involve gerald vernon jackson lying in front of a bulldozer at some point um so um we'll um we'll we'll see kind of what comes with that um i've now got a vision of gerald as arthur dent from the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy indeed well we can we can remind him to bring his towel um so um and if any of our listeners haven't read any douglas adams why not? Um, so, uh, yeah. So on top of that, we've um, we're also um, going to formulate a show where we'd like to invite on people from the political parties, um, whether that they be councillors or whether they actually be um, just uh, members that have actually that have attended their uh, their party conferences. So we um, we'll have. Um, Represent you know people from each of the each of the three main parties actually on to tell us about what the three most important things that happened at their conference that they'd like voters to know, because um, conferences are kind of a bit of a weird thing that um, that um, that probably normal people people that aren't as heavily involved in politics don't necessarily kind of understand or go to um, and they are to be honest full of exactly the types of people that you expect so um, so it'd be lovely to um, to have a conversation uh, with them. Um, and and I, to... I think the other thing we've got is is an appeal. So one of the things mm-hmm. we the shows we have been trying to pull together um, is really looking at the the whole su- subject of shortages, Brexit or pandemic. Um, so we have invited a number of local business representatives to to come and join us. We haven't got as many responses as we might have hoped. So if you are somebody who is aware of or whose business has been affected by shortages. Either either of people, materials, labour, um, all of the above, and you'd like to come onto the show and um, and give us your views and, and your thoughts in terms of 
what my what the root cause really is and and where we should be going next then you can contact us in all the usual ways yes can you not Simon? I- indeed and so if you'd like to contact us either message us via facebook um, or you can contact us on twitter so please um to make sure you get notifications of the show uh follow us on facebook pompey politics podcast you can email us pompeypoliticspodcast at gmail.com um or you can follow us on twitter um politics podcast one and um uh, and basically you can you can join us there and this is our first show where we're actually trying a slightly new bit of technology service to uh, to enable us to simultaneously stream to youtube uh periscope so that's kind of twitter um and facebook so that's kind of all a bit um exciting stuff um but yeah if you'd like to take part in any of those shows or you've got suggestions of future shows by all means please do ping them ping them our way uh we'd love to hear from you but also please do subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a review especially if it's a nice one um, give us five. Give us five stars. Yeah, give us five stars. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would that would indeed be great. So um, let's. Um, so enough advertising ourselves. Um, we're not the BBC. Um, so um, we now have um, a Darren um, waiting in our waiting room. So let's um, let's welcome Darren onto the show, and we'll let him play play with the buttons. Um, to get him so um we've got some questions lined up for darren but if if you've got things that you um and if we've got time to later on then um if there are some that we pick out from the comments we, we might ask him those as well so darren welcome to the show hello 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 and good evening and welcome uh, thank you thank you mr frost that was lovely thank you <laughs> So it's been a while, Darren, since we've uh, we we last had you on, and I guess if we look at uh, framing this evening's show, um, and it's been pretty much headline news for for I would guess probably last two or three weeks, where you know the after twenty years of being in having a presence in Afghanistan, and again it's tied back to the twentieth anniversary of of nine eleven, um, the Taliban very what seemed very suddenly went from being a, a, a potential concern to the whole of Afghanistan falling like a pack of cards, really, and uh, the Taliban now being the controlling government. Um, obviously, as a result of that, over 20 years, there are a great number of local Afghans who have worked with and supported the security for forces, including the UK military. And... You know, we've seen the scenes, you know, very harrowing scenes at Kabul airport as that we looked to airlift out as many people as we possibly could in that very narrow window before the end of August. And I think since then, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of stories paid, played out in local and national media. So we thought we'd get you along this evening to give us the the inside story and perhaps the the truth behind some of those headlines when it comes to Afghan refugees in Portsmouth. So welcome to the show. That's fine, kind Ian. Thank you very much. Excellent. So um, so we'll dive straight into into the questions, Darren. So mm-hmm. um, so in terms of direct impact on Portsmouth, can you share how many how many families um, from Afghanistan are, are are being supported in Portsmouth? Um. Uh, I've been away for the last week, so you're going to have to forgive me. But um, but um, the the target is nine, um, and that will be nine families, um, which the council is negotiating with the Ministry of Defence. These are nine interpreter families. 
there are two schemes. One involves the interpreters that Ian was talking about and the people who've been employed by the, the armed forces Ian is talking about. And the other one is called Operation Warm Welcome, uh, which is uh, the 20,000 people over four years, uh, which you, you may have read about in the papers mm. and seen on the television. At the moment, nobody actually knows what that actually will do and nobody knows what that will mean. Um, but uh, as far as the interpreters are concerned, we've taken nine families so far. Okay, and are they um, are they kind of in the pipeline? Are they already? Would they have they already been settled? Are they already? Um, as as of a week ago, uh, we had seven had already um, occurred. Two were due to come in. Uh, we're told there are about fifteen thousand Afghan refugees in the country. Several are being put up in ho- many are being put up in hotels, um, including those in including some in Hampshire. Uh, it's not clear how many of them have been employed by our armed forces and how many of them have been evacuated in the somewhat Vietnam-like um, mm. scenes that Ian mentioned earlier on uh, of being evacuated from Kabul airport. Um, that's not clear at the moment, but we've we've agreed with the MOD to take nine families, nine interpreter families. And I, I guess, Darren, one of the you know questions that always pops up around, uh, uh, as with any discussion around, you know, uh, asylum and and refugees, is that the, there is a well-publicised shortage of social housing, and I think it's something we've we've discussed before on the podcast. So I guess questions that people might be asking is, well, how have we managed to find um, find these properties in terms of? you know, with, with such a well-publicised shortage of social housing as it stands? Well, it's really odd. I mean, I was asked that question this afternoon, unbelievably, in a pub in Baffins, uh, when I was at a, at a friend's birthday party and the local resident nobbled me to ask exactly that question. Um, we haven't. Um, they're being housed in Ministry of Defence properties. Um, the MOD have various places across the city. Some are off the island, some are on the island. And so they're being housed in those properties. They're not being housed in council housing. Ah, so so there is an element of, in terms of, just to be clear, the duty of care to provide the actual bricks and mortar housing isn't falling to the council. That, that's being done in partnership with the MOD? Yeah, I mean, the, but I mean this is for the interpreter scheme. As I've said, mm. the, the 20,000 people scheme, nobody really knows. So mm. we, we would love to see what's going on with that. Um, but as far as the interpreters are concerned, which is the bit we do know about, essentially the MOD is providing a building um, and they're providing um, the first year's funding. So they're providing the first year's support, the first year's rent and everything else. Um, all the councils who are involved have said, well, hang on here. What happens when we get to the second year? Does this mm. mean we're going to have to cough up uh, for precisely the reasons behind the question you asked? Um, and um, and th- those discussions are going on between all councils involved in the MOD at the moment, but it's MOD buildings. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that kind of speaking to the, as you say, the kind of the what's behind that sort of question, I think in, um, to, you know, to some people's kind of concern would be that um, effectively that, you know, we know that we've got a waiting list for uh, for, for people. We know there's a, de- a massive shortage of social housing in the city. We know, um, um, you know, we can we can see that there are still sadly uh, people worth sleeping in the in the city. So um, perhaps to just to provide a bit of context around around that kind of story, can you tell us what's being done to help 
um, you know, what's being done to address those issues of uh, of social housing and to help the the rough people, uh, rough people, sorry, the people rough sleeping in the in the in the city. They're definitely not rough people. No, uh, sorry, that was a for that. slip of the tongue. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's split into three things. So the context is, you're right, Simon and, and Ian. Many people believe the city's full. Many people believe that we shouldn't build a home ever uh, again because we shouldn't because we're, we're too full. Sometimes that changes when their daughters or their their sons can't find a home. But there are many people who believe, and that's not true. But there are problems, and there are there are definite pressures. So the first thing to do is to build social housing. That's the first thing. When we took over in 2018, there was no plan um, to generate social housing. We've created one. Uh, we've built temporary accommodation at uh, South Sea, the old South Sea Community Centre down in Somerstown. We're in the process of putting together, we're just about to finish work on a place called Doyle Avenue in Hilsey. Uh, we're doing work in Polsgrove. We're doing work in Drayton um, as well. And we're also doing work in properties we own in Havant. But we know that you can't build your way out of this crisis in Portsmouth. Mm. I mean, that's why we believe the government's 17,700 housing targets are mad, frankly, uh, because they're imposing something that this city theoretically can't cope with. Um, so you can't just build your way out of the crisis. You've got to find another way of doing it. And that's why we're buying back um, council houses, which were bought under the right to buy. Um, and it, it is, the circumstance of that varies. Some people can't afford the bills. Some people want to move on. Some people's circumstances have changed. Uh, but we've secured funding to buy at and buy back at least 500 um, council homes by March 2024. Uh, we are well ahead of schedule on that. Uh, we've bought back over 150. And the last figures I saw have more than 100 in the pipeline. That's equivalent to building 500 council homes. Mm. Um, uh, and is, I understand, the biggest program of its type in the country. Um, but it's important, particularly in a city like Portsmouth, because there is that pressure. But that's for people primarily on our waiting list and people we have a legal duty to house. One of the most bizarre things about the stuff I do is that we have no legal duty to house rough sleepers at all. That is bonkers. Uh, we have a moral duty, but we have no legal duty. And uh, so the people we, we accommodate under the schemes which we're now doing are called in government jargon non-priority homeless, which seems to me to be a bit nuts. Uh, but that's what they're called. They're not rough sleepers. So what we've done is we've used money that's been given to us by the government under various schemes, uh, including money that was given to, uh, to deal with COVID, so in April 2020, housing rough sleepers became a priority of the council. Mm. And that has given us the money to uh, get rough sleepers off the streets and into hotels initially, and now into what's described as safe and secure accommodation. There's about 200 rooms of those. Um, the ones that people may have read about, excuse me, are former student blocks in South Sea on Elm Grove and at the old registry office opposite the United Services Portsmouth Ground. Um, but also we've worked with private landlords to put uh, rough sleepers who maybe have less complex needs, but they, just, they maybe just need some financial help and those sorts of things, into private rented accommodation. And in that, those two things together have helped cut uh, rough sleeping in the city significantly. We, we believe we want to end it, but we believe unless you dragoon people at gunpoint, 
into accommodation when they don't want to go, there will still sadly be people who will sleep on the streets. And that's for a whole raft of reasons. Um, and that's why we're continuing to offer support to them, just in case they want to go into the accommodation. So it's a three-pronged approach. Um, there's a fourth prong, which is around preventing homelessness in the first place, which is around making the predominantly private rented sector easier and safer. But those are the, those are the three things we've enacted so far. Sorry, that's a long answer. No, that's all right. Well, it, it needed it needed the detail. I think, I, and I know this is this. It's the thought that strikes me every every time um, we we've discussed it with you is that just providing a place to live isn't um, you know to, um, it, it's not as simple as that. There are there are com, you know for for some people there will be complex reasons why um, why they you know why they haven't got their own accommodation or why they why they feel they're not able to accept the. Um, in a position to be able to accept the offers that are there um, for a variety of uh, reasons that um, and I guess there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer to all of that so it, it, it deserves a decent answer so thanks Darren. No and I think the approach to our sleeping we did from 2018 was to move away from treating people as some sort of amorphous blob um, that you know you can either sweep off the streets which some people believe or you can all save which other people believe and actually treating them as individuals um, and actually as humans with slightly different approaches and slightly different needs. And that's where the support that's provided is tailored towards them. It's not saying you're homeless, therefore you must have X, Y, and Z. That doesn't work. If you've been in Hellman for 18 months or two years, as one guy I ran into in Commercial Road had been, you know, Boots Doorway is better than Hellman. Um, you'll need a different approach to someone who says come from another part of the country having fleed an abusive relationship that you you can't have a one-size-fits-all policy mm. and that's what we're encouraging to do not have that one-size-fits-all policy and i guess the, the the question there darren would be you know we saw a significant there was a step change with the everybody in program mm. at, at the start of covid um but i guess i some of our listeners, I'm sure, will be interested to know, you know, how how much of that has slipped away, you know, with, with there's lots of positivity around us potentially being over the worst of COVID. Um, you know, has that had a bearing on the number of people who have perhaps been in for some period of time and now find themselves back on the streets? Uh, well, you you say things have slipped away. Um, I mean, since the everybody in approach, which was a, a, a government inspired scheme driven by the then rough sleeping czar Louise Casey, that policy was you've got to keep everybody in regardless. So some things have changed. Mm. So if you have, say, for instance, you're a um, you've come in from the European Union and you can't find benefits and you're sleeping on the streets, the government is telling you to go up. Yeah, basically go back where you come from. That was not the case in the everybody in approach. And. We've talked to quite right-wing conservative authorities in other parts of the country who've gone, well, we have a problem here. We can't do this. And it's very interesting when you actually meet those real problems that, that we face. So that's one change. Two, we've been able to exercise a bit more control. So if people have been uh, behaving in a way that is bad uh, for the people around them, we've now got more freedom to, to, to kick them out. Yep. And that's a difficult choice. But it's either that or making sure everyone else is okay. Um, and that has contributed a bit to, to, to some of the people you see on the streets. Um, we believe that's the right thing to do. Um, and that's why we continue to give them help and support 
rather than necessarily say cast them out to the outer darkness because that's madness. Mm. So, yeah, some things have changed, but the whole everybody in approach essentially um, got us to deliver what we were wanting to deliver with money. Mm. And that's a real difference. Portsmouth has, has, has had one of the biggest amounts of money in the country for Sleeping Rough because the government likes the way they do things. They like the fact that we have data and we have evidence, which shocks me about everyone else. They like the fact that we've got a cross-party, multi-agency, independently chaired working group, which is overseeing the work uh, around rough sleeping. And that's been a huge boost. Um, and they like the fact that we've got a plan. Um, and that's massively helpful. Um, and I think the, the, the key thing now, I think, for government is to give us the money to prevent people being homeless in the first place. Because if we're not very careful, we'll have all this money and we'll be back here in five years. And that's a waste of time. Absolutely. So if we bring it back to the, the, the question about Afghan families, um, PCC has been widely reported as as taking the largest share of of um, of families in Hampshire. Um, first of all, is, is this true? Um, and, you know, what, why are other authorities perhaps not stepping up to the same level? Um, it was actually the southeast which was the report it wasn't just hampshire yeah and at the time it was true and it was because we were taking more afghan interpreter families because as i said the, the twenty thousand family plan is still not there um so nine was greater than any other individual authority in the southeast so it was related to the interpreter families and it was true at the time but mm. since then other authorities have actually found properties we we, as, we in portsmouth are helping other councils try and find properties and actually try and find ways to house other councils because we believe that everybody should take their share mm. um this is a national situation this is very very different to um anything else these people as you rightly pointed out ian are here because of a government decision to pull out of Afghanistan. And therefore, we owe it to those people to make sure they live as good a life as possible. Many of the rules around them have changed. They have indefinite leave to remain. Mm. They're treated like British citizens in terms of actually um, uh, having, a, having a legal duty to be housed. And that's very different to anything else we've seen. So we owe it to them. Um, nine remained at that time the biggest figure um, that we had, but other councils have been stepping up and we've been very clear other councils should step up because we can't do everything. No, absolutely. Good to hear. Um, okay, so um, so what would, um, so I think we've kind of, we've kind of touched on it um, a, a bit there. So I guess some of the, some of the concerns that you, you, you know, you, you may well encounter and, and you might, uh, you might tell us some, um, some stories of your interactions with um, with members of the public, but um, so you know, if someone, if you met, um, so like the chap that you were talking about, you met an ex-service person that um, has been on the waiting list for for several years, um, that feels that um, you know these these people are, and I'm I'm quoting someone, are leapfrogging them. Hmm. Um, what what um, what 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 would you say to to someone in that situation, or, or that that makes that that, that yeah? Come? I mean, I, as I said, I have virtually this situation this afternoon. Um, I would say to them, one, they're not going into council accommodation. They're going into Ministry of Defence accommodation. So if you're worried purely about, you know, I'm going to I'm, I'm not going to get my council house and these people are coming on over and getting our council houses. Um, that's not right. 
The second thing is that, again, these are people, I mean, several people in this city have been in Afghanistan. Mm. They know. They've been in other theatres. They know. The, if they've been in Iraq, they know. Um, that the only way you can actually try and in, create a stable country is to have local people working with you. If you've been in Afghanistan, you know what, how the Taliban work and are working now. That's why you saw the horrific sight of people clinging to, clinging to planes um, and then falling off um, in, in, out, out in the sky above Kabul because they knew how it was going to work and they knew how they work. We owe a duty to these people. These people have been helping our soldiers for decades in some cases, and we owe a duty to them to make their lives right, just as they put their lives on the line in Afghanistan to try and stop the Taliban from coming back and, and enacting their murderous regimes. Um, that's what I would say. Um, I think we owe a duty to them. And I guess if I play devil's advocate to that, though, Darren, is that, you know, if, I, if I'm that ex-service person that, that have done my tours of duty in Helmand province and, you know, have, have spent my time and have lost colleagues to IEDs and, and, and you know, those stories that we get back, I guess there is a, you know, I, I think there could be a certain sting in the fact that we've, we've found empty MOD properties that we're now going to make available for these the, these people and you're absolutely right I don't think anybody disputes the duty of care I think the real moral maze question is is you know to 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 the gentleman you spoke to in commercial road you know that that's somebody who served their country on the front line and, and we don't we don't seem to have been able to find an MOD property for him or her I think that's I think it's really interesting I mean for him um, as I said sleeping in a shop doorway was better than Helmet because mm. I asked him, would he go into the accommodation? He said, no. Um, but this was like two, three years ago. Um, I understand. I mean, I understand that. And I think um, depending, on where, <coughs> depending on where they're living at the moment, and some may be living in MOD properties, say up in Hillsea um, or down by the Hailing Ferry, for instance. Um, but we, it, the, we're doing a whole range of things to try and provide, to try and get people off the waiting list. Uh, a target of 500, effectively 500 new council homes that bought back mm. by March 2024, building new properties, stopping people from becoming homeless as well, um, trying to speed up the amount of time, sorry, cut the amount of time properties are empty so people don't have to hang around for so long. All those sorts of things we're doing as well mm. because we know there's a problem. I mean, if we were just saying, oh, we're going to take them all and do nothing else, then I think everybody has a right to go, well, you don't know what you're doing. Um, but we're doing a whole raft of other things too. Um, but interestingly, as I said, for this group of people, this group of people now have an indefinite leave to remain. Mm. The government are treating them like British citizens in terms of council's housing duties. So if people don't like that, please write to your MPs and complain. Personally, I think we owe a duty to them as well. Yep. But I think it's it's the government has changed the rules. So they're exempt from the bedroom tax, for instance, which, you know, many other people in the city would love to be. Um, so things have really changed for them in terms of the duties that we owe to them. Um, I think there's there's wider issues about whether we should have pulled out or not and whether we should have followed Donald Trump's failed policies, as far as I can see, in that. But that's a whole different ballgame. 
we as local authorities of all political parties are now left holding uh, several babies. And and I think that's a that's a very valid point. And, and you know we can we, the 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 history of Afghanistan. If it, you don't have to study it very hard to know that every foreign power that has sought to intervene in Afghan politics and Afghan regimes has left after a shorter or longer period of time without success. So it, it, it's you know it is an int- it's a fascinating lesson in history that you know. I'm not. I'm not sure. You know, famous sort of management thinking is start with the end in mind. Um, I'm not sure how Af- how we ever expected, you know, Afghanistan to 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 work in the way that we would want it to work. So it, it comes as no surprise. I think the the surprise really has been the speed with which the Afghan administration collapsed. Um, you know, and again there was the well publicised. Well, did you phone the foreign minister on Friday? Well, I didn't do it on Friday. And by the time it got to Saturday, he had already left the country. So I think those are the things that have kind of that have contributed to to the speed with which things have had to change. And just picking up on one of the statistics there, you, you, you know, uh, 500 new council properties, you know, for me, it sounds a, it, it's a very impressive number. Um, you know, again, when you think about 500 dwellings and what that would mean if you had to build them, I guess in terms of just for to help with my understanding, the scale of the council waiting list, I, I've got no strong sense as to whether it's hundreds, thousands or tens of thousands. Okay, so the, the council waiting list is around about 2,300. Um, it's gone down a bit over the last few months, but it's been pretty static. Mm. Um, and I think there are various ways that we can deal with it. Now, many of these people are currently living in council properties. They just want to move to, to as they see it, better ones. Mm. Um, so it's not as if these are people who are always on the streets. They want to move to better ones. But many we do ha- we do have a legal duty to house. Um, and they deserve a permanent home mm. uh, because they've left for a whole raft of reasons. Most people leave because they've been kicked out by their private landlord, frankly, uh, mainly because either because they're behind with their rent um, or because the landlord wants to buy the property back or he wants to sell it. He or she wants to sell mm. it. Uh, many private landlords fall into it by accident. Um, they're, they're landed with the property and they don't know how to deal with it. Um, so you've got a really complex situation, which can mean that people may wind up homeless. And so they wind up at the council civic offices going, can I have a place? Mm. And that's why I think we need to, to change that. It's also around trying to get private developers to build more affordable housing in the city. Um, uh, the, a development in my own ward at Kingston Prison uh, was passed as 267 private private dwellings, uh, thanks to a, a deal uh, with the government. <coughs> Excuse me, 167 of those were, are now affordable. Um, so it's about trying to increase the supply where you can, but also trying to deal with what you've got and stop it happening in the first place. Those are sort of the three pillars on which we're we're working. So you know, so for me then, you know, potentially if if you can deal with twenty percent of the waiting list as is uh, over that next three years, then that sounds like a very positive step forward. Yeah, I mean, I I'd like to think so, but I may be mildly biased. 
Yes, I guess you are. You're probably coming at it from a from a, a different perspective. Well, I think the, I think the, the the one of the joys of actually one of the joys about mo. I mean, one of the joys is that actually most of the time, most of the, politi the politicos in in the city actually agree on the basics of how to get things done. Mm. They just disagree on how to get there. Um, so I think one of the things of cutting the waiting list, I think, is something that cuts across everybody. Mm. Uh, it's just how you get there. And I guess looking at it on a on a very practical level, you know, we, we've touched on the the where the bricks and mortars and the roof over the head is going to come from. Um, you know, we we've spoken about you know is the city full? I guess one of the a lot of the concerns are are you know not just around once you've housed somebody that's great you know what about local amenities like doctor surgeries and school places and you know i i'm guessing that a number of these people have been through very traumatic experiences and will need potentially you know areas of support and 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 well-being is that is that part of the equation being left to the portsmouth council to to sort out or are you getting central support with some of those challenges um as far as the the afghan interpreter families that's all being supplied by the by the mod mm. uh, and by the government certainly for the first year um so that includes offers for things like school transport school places uh health care and other forms of support too so it's a really different approach to to what um, some people on the left may think a conservative government would do um, but that to me is very very welcome as I said, we owe a duty to these people. Mm. And as far as rough sleepers are concerned, as I said, there's a tailored package of support, which has been funded by the government, uh, but is being produced by us. Um, and that, again, it revolves around different people having different needs. So some will need help with money. Uh, some will need help with often complex mental health issues. Some will need access to a GP. I mean, we managed to get many of people on the streets and in the homes jabbed uh, over, over the last few months, which has been very good. Um, so individuals need help. Um, and although that support is overwhelmingly funded by government, it's being provided by Portsmouth in, in a tailored way because we know people want to get back on their feet. For me, for, rough, for people who are sleeping rough, I want to see those people in jobs. Mm. I see in other parts of the country, I mean, in London, the mayor of London is doing a fantastic program in terms of providing people training um, when actually I want to see them in jobs. Uh, and that's one of the things I've tasked various people to do. Um, I hope we can make some progress on that uh, soon. And, and it looks like, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, for whatever reason, I think we touched in the intro to the show that we, we, we will pick up a, a, a shortages episode later on. But it, it, it you know, I saw some figures earlier in the week that I think there are well over a million unfilled vacancies at the moment. So in terms of, and often those being sort of entry level positions. So it, it does feel like there, there may be a window of opportunity to, to tie those things together. Uh, yes. I mean, we certainly can't fill a million vacancies. Um, and I think the, the notions, I mean, I was uh on on a train to london on friday and it was half an hour late because the train crew wasn't there they didn't mm. have enough train drivers um you know we're not having enough lorry drivers um the people behind bernard matthews are saying christmas is going to be cancelled because there's not enough carbon dioxide um in order to help uh i mean they're people like me 
would say a lot that that's sort of around problems of leaving the European Union and not having a plan to actually train up British people to do those jobs and to encourage British people to do those jobs um, because we knew they were coming. Um, others will go, well, it's a global, uh, those people who believe differently to me will go, well, it's a global shortage. And, you know, everywhere's got it. So, you know, you should expect it. Um, but that's that. But it's a problem we have to live with. And the more we you're right, Ian, the more we can actually bridge that gap, the better. Mm. Well, we, we'll see. Yeah, because I guess when you're at that point of full employment, <coughs> when it becomes, to use that phrase, if I quote the great Billy Bragg, you know, it's a buyer's market. Um, then, then it does make the challenge of of people, perhaps, you know, who've who've experienced homelessness and some more challenges in their life to to, to find employment. Oh yeah, and absolutely right. And, and I know from speaking to people who, for instance, wanted to leave the European Union in the referendum, they believe that actually leaving would force up the the wages that employers would pay, and that would mean they would feel better able to take on both those jobs. Now we're going to have to see how that works, um, but that that i think is a whole different onion of kettles as, uh, as a friend of mine once said it, it, it would in, it would indeed uh, um, a mutual acquaintance of, our, of ours um quite often says that's a different kettle of onions so um so how how have um you obviously out and about a lot and um interacting with with members uh, members of the public you're speaking to the to the great and the good of, of portsmouth so how have how have portsmouth residents responded to uh responded to the to, to, to this situation um I think how they responded people to the are broadly sympathetic certainly to the interpreters um uh, they they are very very understanding of the situation we've put them in <clears throat> they like the fact we've got a plan um they are worried i mean some of the questions you've asked the questions that they ask um uh Broadly, they're happy. We've had offers of people who want to provide rooms. We've had offers of people who want to provide money. Uh, we've had offers of people who want to provide food, which is all absolutely fantastic. And so we're working with the Hive in Portsmouth to to actually try and help that. We we wait to see what the plan is for the 20,000. Um, because at the moment, it ain't looking like 20,000 over four years. It's looking like 20,000 over four months. Mm. Um, so wait to see what plans emerge for government from that and whether that changes anything. Uh, but at the moment, certainly with the interpreters, people are broadly happy. They do have some concerns, but they're broadly understanding of, of the situation that we're in. And that's great. I, I can't vouch for the great and the good. I don't talk to those people. Jeez, it, it's marvellous. So, and again, you touched on the 20,000 and, and I, uh, it, it may be an unknown, but I guess the, you know, one of the, we we saw the airlifts, we saw the people who got out, and and obviously there are a significant number of people who are left behind in Afghanistan, and their potential journey to the UK will be potentially quite perilous and difficult. But I think to that point around the phasing, I. I like you, I, I share the concern that if you're in Afghanistan now, I, I don't think you're going to be wanting to wait until year four before you come out of Afghanistan to 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 take up your place in the UK, and that that's liable to be very heavily front end loaded. So, where's your next piece of information or insight coming 
from from what impact that might have in Portsmouth? Well, it's going to have to come from the Home Office, frankly. I mean, the Home Office is overseeing that particular, that bit of the programme. Um, that's being led by the safeguarding minister, a lady called Victoria Atkins. Uh, at the Home Office, but we I want to see what more details. We want to see what more details are. Uh, we want we don't know, for instance, whether each council is going to be told you've got to take fifty, mm. uh, coming ready or not. Uh, we don't know if it's going to be a case of well, do you have any room? And I think some authorities may have more room than others. It's not clear what level of support will occur. Uh, whether the level of support being provided to interpreters will continue, whether they'll have the same legal status as the interpreters, we don't know. Mm. Um, all these questions need to be asked before we can provide answers. But what we want to see is to make sure every single council does its bit. We in Portsmouth are doing our bit for people who have served this country in a difficult set of circumstances. And we want to see other authorities do their bit too. Yeah, I was I, going to ask you to. Sorry, sorry. No, that's that's all right. I was, I, I was just. I mean, we, we touched on there a little bit about. Um, I guess it's kind of unimaginable to the to the rest of us to think of. Um, you know this the the the, the situations that you know that you've talked about about tr- the, how trying to help the people that are that are out already. Uh, you know that are that, um, that have made been able to actually be airlifted out, um, but there are still probably sadly many many thousands of people that are effectively trapped desperate um mm. in afghanistan that um um that don't have any means of um being able to get a visa or being able to you know to arrange um a flight um and i, and I, I don't i don't know how to even begin to start to imagine how how desperate a situation that is, how frightening a situation that is, you know, especially when you kind of see the news reported on, uh, you know, the last couple of days about, you know, the Taliban basically um, ceasing um, education for, for girls at, um, at yeah. primary school age um, and um, re, um, renaming, um, was it their, their equalities or their, you know, their ministry for women is the ministry for virtue and vice, um, which is, um, which was an, a part of their organisation before that basically went around beating or, or attacking women that were seen to be doing things that they considered um, immodest um, or, or against um, against their you know their inter, their interpret their their fanatical interpretations of religious law. So it, I, I don't, I mean, especially when you consider that a lot of the people that would have been brought up in the last twenty years of what's been created which is a, a you know a, a mildly westernized society where there's you know where there's education and opportunity for women where there's um you know where, where they have actually possibilities whereas now to you know effectively for them to be forced to be under house arrest um and for their you know for their education and their prospects and their opportunities to, to be curtailed um is it naive to think that those people in that desperate sort of situation are going to be you know rocking up to the airport with a passport in hand and you know the the correct paperwork and you know they're going to be you know run fleeing for their lives aren't they trying to leave the country in any any way they possibly can and that's not going to be through through the normal routes and i just wonder how how long before those those desperate people then actually make 
make their way to uh, to a country of safety and and if they've got connections in the UK or, or they um you know they they might have actually previously been told that they've got, you know they've, they've got a, a place to be able to come to the UK how long before they start being but uh, before they start being the people in boats that pretty Patel is trying to turn away to France um uh, you you You'd put it about as well as I would, um, actually. Um, and I think that that's a real issue because they're going to come on those boats. They are. And we're going to turn them back um, because that's what's being worked through between the British Home Office and, uh, and the French team in Calais. Um, and then what? And, and turning, turning migrants back in boats is very, very popular with people. They, they fully get that and they fully believe that's what a country should do. But if they're fleeing this sort of level of persecution, then the questions become sort of the questions you've been saying this evening, which is, okay, well, should we take them? Well, you know, it's, it's a country of which we know little, would be yeah. a view, particularly some of the more isolationist elements. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think what the government have announced, to, you know, with the uh, with the existing people that, um, that they've brought over um, uh, about effectively treating them as British citizens, giving them the right to remain, that's absolutely the the right stance to be uh, to be taking for people that are that are quite literally fleeing for their lives that are running from a you know a, a, a theocracy a, a theocratic a fascist regime regime they are they are literally running running for their lives this isn't about oh, i want to come here because tesco is great this is um about it's not safe for me to live in that that sort of country um i just think that it needs, you know, what what um, what you've spoken about um, is that the the government haven't, and it might be because obviously they're still formulating it because it's a it's a big urgent thing, and again that that could speak to the the sudden departure from Afghanistan um, and how sadly these things weren't planned for in advance, so that there was some sort of you know mechanism kind of kind of set up to do that. But it, they need to, uh, I guess, the challenge for the the government or the new newly appointed ministers in the in the government. Um, de- relevant departments is that they they need to find an answer of how to do this, how to do this fairly, how to support those people right, and how to make sure that the the measures and the money is there in local councils across the country, so that so that basically these people don't fall through the cracks, so that they don't end up being victims of of basically a well, well it you know it's a nice idea, but we've got no idea how to execute it. Um, correct. But the, the weird thing is the government did actually do that for, for rough sleeping. They overturned, they turned, turned lots of things very quickly. So it can be done mm. with a bit of drive and a bit of foresight. But I think it does come back to Ian's point earlier on, which is there wasn't any. Nobody, mm. nobody believed this would happen, which may be naive. Um, but regardless of what I think about the rights and wrongs of it, and I think it's very similar to... Um, residents of Hong Kong um, who were being told they were going to leave British control after the Chinese murdered hundreds of people and thousands of people in Tiananmen Square in 1989. You know, we owed a duty to them. We owe a duty to these people. We owe a duty to these. But for us as an authority, we have to deal with the practical implications of that. And that requires a detailed plan and long, long, long discussions. The discussions have been great with the MOD so far. Uh, and we just want to see what's coming out the Home Office. Absolutely, Darren. I think, you know, one of the things, isn't it, is it, it and it, it's interesting you touched on it there about the, the you know, the, the, the similarities and differences between, you know, local parties and political, you know, the political figures. Most of us, you know, even though our politics, 
might be different. We all agree on what the right thing to do, or often agree on what the right thing to do is. The the discussions come, or the difficulties or the snagging points then come down to the practicalities of how we're going to do it. You know, and I guess in terms of the interpreter families, there is a little, it, it is an easier arrangement because I guess these people are known to us you know, they have their bona fides. We, you know, we know them. They've worked for us. You know, and if I use sort of slightly divisive language in air quotes, we quote unquote know they're on our side. Um, so are more than happy to accommodate and welcome and and do the right thing by them. I guess the challenge comes, you know, to to the the point Simon touched on there in two years time the person with no documentation who turns up in a rib on a beach in dover it's how do we validate that they are who they say they are and that they are they are the the people who are you know they that are fleeing for the right reasons i put again that again in air quotes because i always have this trouble that you know i rather like france so for me if you're in if you're in france you you're much you are no longer in peril france is a pretty safe place and and the truth is we yeah we don't know and 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 too often people in politics go yes well of course we know when we don't we we simply don't know and that has to be worked through, um, and that requires a discussion between all local authorities and the government as to how we're going to handle it. But as I said, 15,000 are in the country already, mm. um, and they're being processed to use that horrible mm. bureaucratic term or verb. Um, and so, you know, we need to know the plans relatively quickly because they ain't going to stay in hotels forever. No, that's the. That you know that that's the thing, but as you, as you said, there are examples of actually, despite um, its reputation for being unwieldy and impossible to to enact change, very uh, or in, even enact um, effective um, change very very quickly, um, there are recent examples of government actually doing precisely that. Um, so you know, with with the right will and um, with the you know with the right um, with the right motivation and, and support, then and hopefully. The right help can be um, can be made available to um, to make sure that we, as a country, we we stand by our our moral commitment to, to these people and that we help them, and that they're able to be they're able to feel safe again, and then hmm. you know reclaim reclaim their lives. Even yeah. if you know, you know even even if they are thousands of miles from home, if they can at least you know do that here and be, and be safe and actually build a, build a life where they're not having to look over their you know look over their shoulder or, or worry about. You know, why has someone not come back from going out shopping or etc.? Correct. Um, but that that's um, that's something that we're going to have to look at over the next months and years. Yeah, that's the other and thing. So, is... what happens when the next one of these occurs? What do we do then? Um, you know, what, is there another intervention that we will make that will will fail and or we'll we'll be forced to pull out? And then what happens? Uh, I mean, yeah. the, the Vietnam comparison is an incredibly good one because I remember the I remember growing up and watching the boat people come over. Yeah, 
um, and many of them, including in Portsmouth and in other parts of southeast Hampshire in this region, were welcomed um, with, with open arms. And they've been fantastic contributors to our, um, our, our country, um, as is the case in the US. So these things will continue to happen. Um, and we've just got to plan ahead, really. And on that bombshell, I think that's um, that's um, uh, oh, we did we did want to ask actually, didn't we? The, the you had the last question. We need we need to ask that. Was it yeah. oh, okay? You tell me what your last question is. Then. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was really just that there's there's been some great media stories about um, you know, people of Portsmouth stepping up and and you know really wanting to help. You know, do do you get the impression that as a naval port city, you know, we we, we are overwhelmingly there's a there's a there's a feeling of welcome yeah and, and i think it's not just true here i think it's true in other parts of the country as well i mean they they see the same photos you mentioned earlier on ian um and they just go lord almighty we we want to help these people um and that's why we encourage people to get in touch with the council that's why we encourage people to get in touch with the hive if they want to offer up um, donations or expressions of interest or potential rooms and everything else uh, because that will help us along the way uh, and the more people who can do that the better but it, it does show just how wonderfully warm this city is so that um just um in case anybody needs it that would be hive portsmouth all as one word dot org dot uk um is their website so if you look on there you can find ways um to contact them and um and offer your help and assistance yep no that's great perfect well darren thank you ever so much as always so you've been listening to the pompey politics podcast i've been ian tiny morris Uh, and our guest has been Uh, i'm darren sanders and i've been simon sansbury Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa. Play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics Podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa. Playing the latest episode. Stop. See? It's easy. <laughs>